and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and I am here to quickly introduce you to a lovely conversation that my co-host, Rabia Satabi, had with author Ron James, who recently wrote The Truman Court, all about the Supreme Court and the trials and tribulations it has faced throughout history and those that it faces today. Hi, everyone. I am Rabbi Sitabi. Welcome to Write the Omnibus. Today, we are talking to author and legal expert Ron James Jr., especially about his latest book, The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me, Rabia. Happy to have you on. So, Ron, once I saw the book and the press release, it immediately became clear that there are very clear parallels to what is happening currently in America when it comes to the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. So I wanted to ask what inspired you to do this book now about Harry Truman specifically? Well, like the idea came from uh, researching my um, second book, The Double V, How Wars, Protest, and Harry Truman Desegregated mm -hmm. America's Military. In researching that book, I, I learned a great deal about um, Harry Truman and how he um, how his Department of Justice worked with outside groups, primarily the NAACP, in pursuing the civil rights aspect of his agenda to do mm -hmm. what no president had done previously, but something that we now expect our presidents of either party to do. And that is to use the Department of Justice and the judicial branch on offense, for lack of a better term, not just yeah. to defend the um, administration's policies, but actually to pursue the administration's policies. And now we expect our presidents of either party to do exactly that. And indeed, that is uh, why many people vote for a particular party, regardless of who the nominee is. Yeah, that sounds very current as well. Do you feel that because how the parallels can be drawn right now with the court that basically has been elected by Trump? Do you feel that that is not abuse of the system? But how do you find the parallels and how that has now twisted in itself to become something bad, basically? Well, I, I think that um, I, I don't think uh, uh, President Trump did anything wrong in that I think it would be malpractice for any uh, malpractice of the highest order for any mm -hmm. president to have a vacancy on the Supreme Court and not nominate someone to fulfill it. I think the uh, the grave error that I think really um, I, I I think is 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 up there with the uh, Bush versus Gore decision, which, of course, was the court. But in Congress. When uh, Senator Mitch McConnell refused to even allow a hearing for President Obama's nominee, um, yes. uh, Judge Merrick Garland, that really poisoned a well that already had unclean water. And that led us very much to where we are today. But President Trump, for all of the faults and, and uh, things that people might fault him for, had mm -hmm. nothing to do with that. So no, no. he came into office and he was presented with vacancies, three of them. In fact, uh, yeah. uh, as, as President Truman was uh, presented with four vacancies, uh, mm -hmm. and so he he filled those vacancies. So I don't think the, um, the previous president did anything that he was not uh, supposed to do um, in yeah. that instant. I think what Senator McConnell did is uh, ex extremely regrettable. I think his party will come to regret it um, mm -hmm. at some point. It's it still shocks me to think that there'd be a nominee um, who d does not even is not even granted meetings with senators. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas towards the end of the Trump presidency, 
it seemed to be going into a speed train. Again, not at fault for Trump because everyone else agreed and let it happen. So this last nominee, there was this, a vacancy right in the elections or right before the elections, if I remember correctly. And it got through. And yeah, well, that's right. what happens. Yeah. And, and, and there's no rule. But, and exactly to that to that exact point, there's no rule that if a justice dies on January 18th, and mm-hmm. by some way, the United States Senate, which can't do anything, can, they can't even agree on naming a post office. But if yeah. they have a way to get someone confirmed by new by eleven fifty nine on January twentieth, there is no reason why a there's there's nothing written that says a president should not try to get his or her nominee on the court. I just don't see that's where the fault lies. I think it's it's not baseball with a whole bunch of unwritten rules. And that's where, at least now, some of the commentators on the left are beginning to call it a mistake, what Justice Mm. Peter Ginsburg did, in the sense that her everything that she had worked for for decades, for generations, in fact, as an attorney, as well Mm. as a judge, as well as a justice, have a good chance of being undone by by the person who replaced her. Yeah. You make a very interesting point where it's a vacancy that comes in and it has to be filled and there are no rules or (laughs) there's no system in place that says that can't do that. It's like a gentleman's agreement, maybe in some people's eyes, but it's not something that's down on paper. Do you think that maybe the selection process of the Supreme Court justices should be looked at with more scrutiny, seeing what now is happening and how this is being gamified, basically, to parties um, to try to use seats or the emptying of seats or the filling of seats to their agenda? I I think the selection process is sound. And um, Mm. I think I would even say that the uh, previous president's, uh, President Trump's selection process, which was led by White House counsel uh, Don McGahn, I think was a sound process for what they wanted to do. The confirmation process is off the rails. And I think that if you're personal friends with senators of either party on the Judiciary Committee, be it Senator Cory Booker or uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, and you're Mm -hmm. able to talk to them off the record as as an old high school friend, they would Mm -hmm. agree that it is off the rails. We didn't always have confirmation hearings. Confirmation hearings were something of a new construct. And I think it's worthwhile because it's the only time that Americans get to see the person who's going to be a justice because we do not have televised Supreme Court hearing. So the only other time we see them is sitting silently during a State of the Union address or perhaps giving a speech. But usually they sign agreements saying that this speech cannot be video recorded. So it's the only time the American public gets to actually see and hear them, hear the potential justices um, for themselves. But even the hearings are a relatively new construct. They just began in the uh, 20th century during the Calvin Coolidge administration with his nominee who became who later became the uh, chief justice, Charles Evan Stone. And the question, it was a very small question. Senators just wondered because soon to be Justice Stone had earned a great deal of money in the private sector representing uh, Wall Street. And Wall Street had become ascendant during the Coolidge administration and suddenly had much more power. I mean, there was no Wall Street before you know, uh-huh. Wall Street existed as it did, as it came to be in the Coolidge administration. They thought, well, we can't just have an automatic vote for the bankers on the Supreme Court. And so they wanted to have a hearing about it. And he agreed and he went and said, hey, I will not be an automatic vote. And, you know, they, they, he had it out with the Judiciary Committee and he was not at all. Uh, he was true to his word and was not at all an automatic vote for the bankers or banking interests when he came onto the court. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, that's super interesting. Looking at, especially it being televised, I'm personally European. I live in the Netherlands and the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were very publicly televised and that stuff that we over here got to see as well. There were very clear allegations against Justice Kavanaugh. Do you have any particular feelings about the vetting process or how that was so public and he was still given a seat? Do you feel that that's something that should have gone differently or do you agree with the process? I'm curious to hear your side on this. I think his confirmation hearings were were absolutely unfortunate. Senator Dianne Feinstein's office had the information. And they, as I recall, they um, did not let anyone else know about this information for months from Dr. Blasey Ford. They, they did not mm. let anyone know that these allegations were there. And then suddenly this individual's in a hearing and then there was her, her testimony, which I found, you know, uh, somewhat credible, but you know, I'm just watching it on TV with everyone else. And then these other allegations just started coming out that were, as uh, uh, Kavanaugh said, they were mm. from the Twilight Zone. What it truly laid bare, even more than the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991, it really laid bare that the end goal of keeping a judge off the court is primary in the minds of, of each opposing member of the judiciary. And it does not have to be that way. For most of our history, it was not that way. But unfortunately, it has become that way. And it's become that way in, I believe, in large part because of the inaction of the very people who are questioning these potential justices, and that is to say the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. A primary reason why the Supreme Court is so powerful right now is because the United States Congress is so impotent. Yeah, They don't fulfill their basic responsibilities of passing budgets, of uh, passing laws, unless they're tax cuts. They do not declare war. We have not declared war since mm -hmm. World War II. We stopped declaring war, in fact, during the Truman administration. So in this vacuum, pol politics abhors a vacuum more than um, nature does. And into this vacuum, um, the executive branch, Article 1, the presidency has become ascendant. And Article 3, the judiciary has become ascendant. And that's mm -hmm. why these judges wield so much power and the stakes are so high for every single one of these Supreme, Supreme Court vacancies. Yeah. Yeah. Tacking on to that a little bit more, because as an outsider, we get to follow this news. We consume what we see on TV. And what I'm seeing a lot right now is the whole question around the big one, Roe v. Wade. It seems to be that that is now the big news coming out of America. How do you currently feel about this? And do you see any type of strategy happening? I was surprised uh, strategically that the court accepted this case for review because the court did not have to. Mm -hmm. um, there's no split in the circuits. The, the usual boxes, you know, one of several boxes that must be checked in order for the court to grant review. Uh, none of those boxes are checked here. The yeah. law is settled. There's no split in the circuits. This is a matter of, it appears, we don't know what they're, they're going to move. We don't know how far they're going to move, but this appears to be a matter of the court reaching out to do what it wants to do. And to that end, that that's why it, it irks me so much to hear almost every single commentator in the media mm -hmm. refer to these conservative justices. And it's a conservative court now. It's not a conservative court. It's the opposite of a conservative court. A conservative court conserves. Yes. <clears throat> they, they, <laughs> they, they follow stare decisis and they want to keep it for better or worse. They want to keep things as they are. 
and move forward incrementally. This, mm-hmm. what we have right now is a court being pulled by right-wing justices. The chief justice is a conservative. He's a, yeah. he's a, a true conservative. But the justices who, my, my surmise, we never find out who are the four, it takes four justices to agree mm-hmm. to grant certiorari. We do not find out who those four are. But mm-hmm. my surmise is they are four, uh, uh, four who are called conservative, at least three of them, who are often called conservatives, who are not in fact conservatives. They are right-wing justices who want to move the court. And only one of them owns up to it, and that would be Justice Clarence Thomas who owns up to wanting to move the court. And he says, when we overturn precedent, why don't we say we're doing it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe I'll be Mm -hmm. just naive about it. I was just surprised that so soon after Justice Barrett's confirmation, it seems as if the first opportunity that came along, where it's it's not even a close call, Mm -hmm. um, this this should be batted down. And they um, they jumped at it and accepted it. I, I was surprised by that. Yeah, that's interesting to hear that for you as someone who lives in the States, that it was surprising, whereas someone who lives outside of the country (laughs) and only consumes news that we have here in Europe, for instance, it was presented as that would be exactly the case. Like as soon as these three justices were confirmed, the first thing that they would attack would be Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. So from an international news site, it was presented as, okay, well, this is part one that they're going to go after. And then next is going to be going back towards more segregation or harder laws on by POC in the States. So from the outside looking in, it kind of looks like this playbook. I would bet that it, it appears that way to millions of f- folks here in, in the United States as well. My, mm-hmm. uh, my problem with it is that I come to, I, I view it as a, through the lens of a lawyer who's been practicing law in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. for 20 years. So I look at it as, <laughs> oh, well, the court shouldn't be doing this because of the start decisive, this and that. Whereas, you know, your, your regular educated news observer might look and say, well, this is what they were put there to do. So they're just doing what they um, were put there to do. Yeah, correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Different perspectives, basically. There's stuff that they should be doing or should not be doing, but it's being put on the table because that was the strategy. And that's the thing that they're performing on right now. I'm wondering, since we're talking so much about Supreme Court justices, first of all, what would be your ideal way to assign Supreme Court justices? Should it be a party driven decision? So whoever is in the president's seat gets to choose? Or would you, for instance, look towards a bipartisan solution, something less influenced by whichever party is in control? Or is there another suggestion from your own strategy book that you would suggest, like in an ideal world, if you would go to a utopia, how you would have a Supreme Court justice or justices appointed to their seat? I think the rules that we have in place are good when they're used the way that they've been used for most of American history. And that is that the president nominates someone and nominates that person with political considerations in mind because the president Mm -hmm. is a politician. And best case scenario for the American people is a president in his or her first term nominating a justice, because then we definitely get the political considerations in mind. And that's part of what puzzled many with President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland, trying to meet the Republicans in the middle, so to speak, to begin negotiating in the middle. And it's a little bit off off center from your from your question for a moment. But um, Mm -hmm. 
One imagines that if, if President Obama had nominated one of the outstanding African-American women who are well qualified to, uh, to sit on the court, and she had been denied meetings with senators, mm-hmm. it might have been a much bigger deal. And folks yeah. might not have took, regular voters might not have took it lying down. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, and so if, had he not tried to meet people in the middle, there, there were a number of people who could have uh, nominated. It could have been a, a, better, a better political fight. And so I think politics should play a consideration in that. I, I, I think that had perhaps the Obama White House looked at it through a more political lens, they might have come to a different decision mm-hmm. in their nomination. And it would have put the Republicans in a much tougher position to say, we're simply we're not going to meet with her and have yeah. that have have uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the woman of, of, of any race. But, you know, have, have her go through um, the hallways of Congress waiting to meet with senators and they simply won't answer the door. Well, you've mm-hmm. got a, uh, you've got a problem on your hands politically. Mm-hmm. And Harry Truman's first nomination is a perfect example of that. Um, it was shortly after he, uh, after Truman took office. Franklin Roosevelt had been the only president millions of Americans knew, uh, having been elected to four terms and dies shortly um, into his fourth term as president. And President Truman gets to the gets to the White House, and he's got a number of problems. You know, they lay World War, things like mm-hmm. that uh, to deal with. And he uh, has this uh, Supreme Court vacancy very soon into his term. And Gallup, we've heard of the Gallup polls now, you know, Gallup, uh, uh, the Gallup polls that we have here in America. The Gallup polls were truly coming into their own during this time period. And Gallup conducted a poll of the American people. And the American people believed that that mm-hmm. President Truman should nominate a Republican to be on the court. And this is Separate issue we, we can discuss in a moment, but actually Americans yeah. are not afraid to call justices a Republican or a Democrat because mm. it's, you know, facts and people are adults. <laughs> yes, talk yes. like adults. Right. And so they said, well, the court consists right now of with this vacancy of eight Democrats. And we haven't had a Republican nominee to the court in many years. President Truman should nominate a Republican to the court. President Truman mm. thought about it, said, and he was, had, you know, just left the United States Senate and he you know, got together with his brain trust and agreed. And he nominated Ohio Republican Senator Harold Hitz Burton to be a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. And it was a political masterstroke. Senators of both parties, you know, acclaimed the, uh, uh, the decision. You know, uh, Senator Burton was very well respected. And Republicans spoke on the record repeatedly about the fact that they appreciated that the president had nominated a Republican to be on the court so that they, we could start getting back to equal representation on the court. And on the Democratic side, Ohio had a Democratic governor at the time, and he was able to appoint a Democratic senator to replace the Republican senator. So it was a political <laughs> masterstroke, and it shows that politics being involved in the decision making, so long mm-hmm. as the nominee is qualified, there's nothing wrong with that. It can actually serve the American interests. Yeah, very true. That's interesting, though, because that's like a, a double tap for Truman, basically. He had two in one go and made it work for both his party, but also his interests and what the public wanted. Yes, that's right. And and also uniting the, the American people around him, this um, you yeah. know, a, a senator from Missouri who's suddenly the president of the United States and, you know, Americans are grieving the death of Franklin Roosevelt. Well, we mm-hmm. can unite behind his that. And then he does this and it's further uniting. And then, you know, with the war effort, it was it was um, really a, a, a fantastic political move that is, is an example of how politics can really work in favor of the nomination process. It sounds like Truman wrote an amazing almost playbook for any upcoming president that really wants to hone in into the politics and use it correctly. 
Yes, that's right. And yeah, and Truman's understanding of the of the Senate, his knowledge of the Senate and of the people in the Senate and of election cycles as well mm-hmm. played uh, played a role. But this was also a, a time where nominees were largely confirmed without a great deal of controversy. There might be some arguing during the, you know, in the committee hearings uh, about, you know, small issues, for example, you know, the, the stock and Wall Street issue we uh, spoke of earlier. But uh, uh, Truman's uh, fourth nominee, Shur- Sherman Minton, was asked to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he declined to do so. Oh, wow. he, had been a, he had been a former senator who was a hardcore New Dealer, and then he was on the uh, served for years on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and he was from uh, Indiana. And what senators wanted to know is they they essentially wanted him to answer for his time as a senator. He was very much a firebrand in the way that we might think of someone on the hard right today being a firebrand. He was very much a firebrand on the left, banging tables, um, yelling about you know the New Deal. Republicans would say, well, the Constitution doesn't allow for this program, that program. And Mm -hmm. he famously said, a man can't eat a Constitution. And so (laughs) they wanted him to come and answer. They wanted Sherman Minton to come and answer questions about that. And he respectfully declined to do so. Oh, Um, wow. That was the last time you could do that. But we did not always have these hearings. And the hearings themselves took a great big turn. Everyone agrees with the hearings of Robert Bork in the 1980s, where it was very contentious it was something Americans had not seen before, but in mm-hmm. fairness, though, it was all along his thoughts and his writings. It was all in fair game. It was not about his personal life or different things. It was about mm-hmm. this is what he believes. And senators were opposed to, unfortunately for him, um, the uh, majority uh, were opposed to the things that he had written and believed. Okay. I love hearing about this kind of stuff. First of all, I commend you and your storytelling. You're very good at it. It makes me very engaged in it. What in your book is another moment that you were like, oh, I, I need people to know this. Don't give away the best fruit, maybe, but like one of the moments in your book that you're like, okay, and this little gem over here, the world needs to know this about Truman. Uh, well, this is something that actually um, the, the uh, immediate past president reminded me of with the incredible pomp and circumstance that he had for the um, justices that he successfully nominated, particularly the last one with uh, mm-hmm. Justice Amy Coney Barrett. With I mean, it was this. It ended up being, I guess, a COVID super spreader event. But they had this massive event at yeah. the White House, and you know, so many and, and people were appalled. And, and understand, I understand being you know being upset and appalled that he's violating the COVID regulations, disease control, right? The, the CDC yeah. guidelines. I I completely understand. Understand that that he was not mm-hmm. an example um, that his own CDC had set forth that the rest of us had to follow. But politically, also people were upset and saying, "Well, that, you know, the justice should be independent." President Truman was the first one to give, uh, when he when his very good friend, um, whom he nominated for chief justice, Fred Vincent, was confirmed, and so we had Fred Vincent swearing in. We get back to the fact that Harry Truman, because he became president ap- upon Franklin Roosevelt's death, Harry mm-hmm. Truman was sworn in. Uh, in uh, in a room with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of men standing around in suits and Eleanor Roosevelt standing there. And the chief justice was not even wearing his robe uh, oh, because wow. things have to be done quickly. You know, Lyndon Johnson was sworn in on the plane. There has to be a president. And so he was sworn in with, you know, with necessarily so without, you know, any celebration. And of course, the president had just died. Yeah. So he was, I don't want to say he was determined. This is my own, my own from having, you know, I began researching Truman when I was 28. I'm 44 now. Mm-hmm. My third book with 
instrument in it. Um, <laughs> so you get to feel like you can, you know, learn, you learn something between the lines about a person. Mm-hmm. And it seems that he was determined to give the chief justice the inauguration that he had not had. And so when the Chief Justice Fred Vinson was sworn in, it was not done at the Supreme Court building. Harry Truman had it at the White House, had the Navy band playing there, had thousands of spectators come through from Washington, regular people come through, have a party there Mm -hmm. on the White House lawn. There was even a plane dipping and diving, writing things in the sky, uh, congratulatory notes in the sky, like one of those skydiving old smoke planes that they used to have. It was a huge, humongous celebration uh, playing the music. And Harry Truman instructed the Navy band not to play Hail to the Chief, which is the (laughs) song that we play for the American president when he enters or leaves a room, because he said this is going to be uh, the Chief Justice's day. And he was he was so happy to do that for Chief Justice Fred Vincent. Nothing like that had ever been done before. And political mm-hmm. observers started and thought it was just such a strange thing. What, what, what do we do? Like, no, that's an independent branch. And so I was reminded of that when uh, uh, President Trump had his big ceremonies and bringing up the family of the justices and all of that. And yes. uh, appalled so many people uh, new again. But mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 ha- it has been done before. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. That's that's super interesting to hear. Obviously, it was different times, but it's very interesting that so much fanfare has been done before around a justice appointment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it, and, it, and it does, you know, the, the separation of powers is so essential to mm-hmm. our, you know, to our way of, of government um, that it does rub people uh, the wrong way. Um, yeah. But it's not the end of the world. True, true, very true. What would be your ideal Supreme Court justice nominee? And you can pick anyone from history, current time, even fictional character, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) If you think of an ideal Supreme Court justice, do you have a particular person that comes to mind? I would say Charles Hamilton Houston, who was Thurgood Marshall's mentor. And Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall were the subject of my first book, Root and Branch. Charles Hamilton Houston's name was actually floated in um, as a possible Supreme Court justice. He was um, the by, he was the most famous and best educated African-American lawyer in history at his time. The first to argue before the Supreme Court of the United States. And in fact, when he argued before the Supreme Court for the mm-hmm. first time, uh, one of the justices turned around and faced the wall to demonstrate that he would not be listening to an, uh, the argument made by an African-American justice. But Charles oh, wow. Houston designed the legal strategy that led to the end of segregation. He did not live to see it. He died an early death uh, due to tuberculosis contracted in the war. But he died mm-hmm. in, in, in 1950. But he's just an unbelievable human being and hero um, that I wish more people knew about, and uh, he would have been uh, an outstanding, if very harsh and rough, uh, member of the uh, Supreme Court. He would have been very, very tough on the uh, attorneys arguing their cases, I imagine. He sounds like an amazing human being, and just as a political individual, but in general as well. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that I may have missed in my questions with you? No, I really enjoyed our conversation, Robbie. Same. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much for doing this with us. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Have a nice day. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, 
Take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.